Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 2nd, 2020, and this is show number 795. Well, this was a huge week around here, and I am super excited to tell you all about it. Ken Ray, famous for his macOS Ken podcast, has a relatively new show called In a Few Minutes. The format of the show is pretty interesting. macOS Ken ends with some music and in a few minutes starts up with the same end of the same song, so it sort of feels cohesive with the other show, psychologically. The plot of In a Few Minutes is that he records with someone for about an hour with five different subjects, and then he edits that into five different episodes, one for each day. Personally, I wait till the end of the week and binge all five, but if you like a daily entertainment and 10-minute episodes, you can do that too. This week, I was Ken's guest, and we had a delightful time together. He really cracks me up. And I want to draw your attention to two of the episodes in particular. On Thursday's episode, we talked about what makes us feel like we're living in the future. If you're looking for some content that will make you feel happy and have some joy right now, this is the episode to listen to. On Fridays, Ken does what he calls an album side with his guest. Evidently, in the dark ages of local radio, the host would ask people to call in with their perfect album side, five songs that would make up one side of a vinyl record. Ken knows that I don't listen to music. So on last week's show, when he was chatting with Tom Merritt, he said he wouldn't be able to do that with Allison coming on the show, but Tom said he had to do it with me for that very reason. So I did an album side, but I went out of my way to put five songs together that would be the most uneven thing you have ever heard. I dusted off the 11 albums I've bought in my lifetime, and I chose some of my favorites. The episode is pretty funny, and I think you might enjoy it. I put a link in the show notes, by the way, to my shared playlist of that album side if you'd like to give it a listen. You can find the first episode of In a Few Minutes with me joining Ken at a link also in the show notes, or just search for In a Few Minutes in your podcatcher of choice and look for the episode starting July 27th. A few months ago, I made some fun discoveries about the built-in markup tools in iOS and iPadOS, and I wrote an article telling you about my discoveries. I decided to do a video tutorial on these tools for Screencast Online, and as usually happens, I learned even more about the tool as I created this tutorial. You know what they say, the best way to learn is to teach. In a nearly 40-minute video, I was able to take my time explaining how to take screenshots on the various devices, you know, iPads versus iPhones and Face ID versus Touch ID. I explained the basics of annotating screenshots, but then I dug deep into how to use the object eraser versus the pixel eraser, how to know the thickness of the pencil you are using, how to use the ruler just on screen to draw straight lines. I detailed use cases for the magnifier tool combined with the opacity slider and how you could use the lasso to select several elements and copy and paste them on screen. I even explained how I figured out what the weird little pencil with the diagonal lines on it was even called. It's called the lasso. And that spoiler, I used voiceover to figure it out. While doing much of the demo on an iPad, I made sure to demonstrate differences where the experience might be different on a smaller screen. I also gave a sneak peek at a small change in the latest iPadOS 14 beta that'll add some just a smidge more capability when we get there. Many of the tutorials, uh, video tutorials I've produced for Screencast Online require you to spend money to enjoy the tool I'm teaching, but this one is built right into iOS and iPadOS, so it's free. Well, free for the hundreds of dollars you've already paid for your devices, of course. 
I included a video preview of the tutorial in the show notes, but remember, you can watch all of the Screencast Online back catalog with a free seven-day trial at screencastonline.com. I will warn you, as I always do, to not do the free trial, though, because if you do, you'll get hooked, and then you're going to want to have all of the content from now on. So, you know what? Don't blame me if you sign up, because I warned you. A few months ago, a gentleman named Sean Peterson wrote a blog post about his life as a Native American of the Puyallup tribe. In his blog post, he talked about his work as a professional artist working in public sculptures, printmaking, and mixed media, and how he uses technology to plan installations for major works and private commissions. I asked Sean to come on the podcast, in fact, Chit Chat Across the Pond, to talk about this fascinating combination of creating authentic Native American art and how people give him a hard time for using technology to do it. They kind of want him to do it old school for some reason. His life experiences are fascinating. His background is unlike anyone I know. And as a full-fledged, hardcore software geek, he is also part of my world. He listens to the podcasts, in fact. Anyway, this is a, a quiet, introspective conversation in which I learned a lot about a world completely unknown to me. I hope you'll give it a listen by looking for Chit Chat Across the Pond, Light, episode number 648 in your podcatcher of choice. You can, of course, always listen over at podfeed.com. Sean goes by uh, his inherited name, Qualsius, that's Q-W-A-L-S-I-U-S, and you can find his art and learn more about him at qualsius.com. And of course, there's links in the show notes. Several years ago, I got it into my head that it'd be really cool if the tutorials Bart Bouchatz has been writing for the Taming the Terminal series could be an ebook. If you're unfamiliar with this series, it's a podcast with me, and the tutorials are written entirely by Bart, and they're intended for learning to master the terminal in macOS and, ter and Linux. I noodled the idea of making a book out of it for a while, and I even took a crack at it by myself. I downloaded the HTML for a few installments, and I copied them into Apple's Pages app, and I started editing. After hours and hours and hours of work on it, it looked, to use a favorite description of Bart's, like horse poop. I even found a service called dot, uh, what was it, dot .epub that supposedly would take HTML web pages and turn them into EPUB books. Again, that was a complete and utter fail. A few, user, a few years ago, after Shelley Brisbane published one of her books, I asked her if I could pay her to teach me how to do it. And she said, no, it's way too hard. So I gave up on the idea. But I never stopped thinking about how cool it would be to make a book out of Taming the Terminal for Bart. Now, fast forward, and I've mentioned recently, in the last couple of years, listener Helma from the Netherlands. I've talked about her a bunch of times. And it's been a great joy of both Bart and mine that we've gotten to meet her in person. She's a super nerd, so totally our people. Steve was with us, by the way, when we, well, with me when I got to meet her, Bart met her separately. So fast forward to April of 2020, when I idly mentioned to Helma that I'd love to figure out a way to someday make Taming the Terminal into a book. Well, right around this time, she was helping Bart convert the Programming by Stealth show notes from HTML on bartb.ie to Markdown on pbs.bartificer.net. Her response surprised me. She said, well, I think I could figure out how to do that. For the last four months straight, Helma and I have been engaged in a super secret project working towards this very goal. I am proud to announce that Taming the Terminal is now a published book. 
The technical work was uh, pretty hard, but the hardest part for both of us was not telling Bart about this amazing project. Believe it or not, we succeeded in keeping it a secret from him. And we told a bunch of people, but I basically threatened their lives if they told him about it. So I'm going to get into the details of the making of the book in a minute, but I want to explain the different versions you can download right now for free. There are differences between the versions and how the podcast can be played from inside the book to allow you to listen along while you study the tutorial show notes. So the most exciting and splashy version is probably the version we were able to publish to the Apple Bookstore. It's thrilling to me to see the cover art in all of its glory on the official store. This version has a link to the audio files. We wanted to have an embedded HTML5 player so you'd have the controls right within the book instead of opening the audio files in a browser, but unfortunately, Apple denied the book in that form. They said you can't do that. So, you can get the book from the Apple Bookstore, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and I really want you to go download it. However, the book is also available to read on the web at TTT bartificer.net. So if you can spell Bart and you can add Ificer on the end, you could probably find this URL. And of course, the link is in the show notes. So if you just go to tttbartificer.net, you'll be able to read the, uh, read the book in HTML form. So Helma and I created the book all, uh, all using the version control system Git, and we hosted the project on the service GitHub. Now, you don't need to understand what all that means, but it will be important to explain the location of all the other free links to download the book. We're going to come up with some easier to remember links later, but we wanted you to be the first to get the book now. So if you go to github.com, and I've got a link in the show notes, you can get to the Taming the Terminal project inside GitHub, and that's where all versions of the book are. So if you want the version of the, uh, like I said, we, we created an EPUB version that had the audio player embedded in it, and that's the one Apple wouldn't let us give you, but you can download it from this uh, link in the show notes. It's called ttt-audio.epub. So if you download that one and open it in Apple Books, you can do it. You'll get the audio player inside the, uh, inside the book instead of the version from Apple Books. It's slightly more convenient, but the other one still works. There's also two beautiful PDF versions, and I got to confess, I think the PDF version is the prettiest one. The first one is ttt-us.pdf, and that one's formatted to 8.5 by 11 standard used in the U.S., and the other one's called ttt.pdf, which is in the A4 format used most often outside of the U.S. It's kind of helpful to know if you plan on maybe printing it out for reference. Now, uh, actually, I said my favorite is the PDF version, but there's one I like even better, and I do think it is the HTML5 version. You can get to it, like I said, by going to ttt.bartificer.net, but if you download it, you've basically got it as a web-based manual local to your machine, beautiful for searching, and it looks fabulous. We even made a Mobi version that works on Kindles, and that one's ttt.mobi. Now, unfortunately, the non-Fire Kindle readers can't play audio, and 99% of the Kindles out there, I think, are not Fires. They're just regular Kindles, right? So they can't play the audio, but we wanted a way around that problem. She created QR codes for the links to every episode and embedded those in the book. So using any smartphone, you point the camera at the QR code. You can do this with Android or, or with iPhones. You point the camera at the QR code, and your device will automatically show you the URL and if you tap it, it'll start playing the audio. 
This means you could read on a Kindle while listening on your phone, and maybe that's the best of both worlds for you. By the way, these QR codes show up in many of the versions of the book, but they're really critical to the Kindle version. So now that you know where to find it and how awesome it is, and like I said, we'll probably make the links easier for this, and I'm certainly going to put splashy stuff on podfeed.com. Look, no, there's a book. But uh, now that you know how awesome it is, I wanted to elaborate a little bit on the backstory. 97% of the credit for the book should absolutely go to Helma. Steve did the audio editing of this series and put it up on archive.org. I did the editing of Bart's text, fixing typos, and I tested every single command in the tutorials to make sure nothing was wrong, and I designed the book cover. But the process of creating the book cover is a fun story in and of itself, so I'm going to make that a separate article. You'll hear about that later. I had a lot of fun creating that. But other than advising on decision-making, Helma did every single other thing on this project. Like the fact that the book exists, it's all Helma. So next week, we're going to do a chit-chat across the pond, me and Helma, about the creation of the book. So I don't want to spoil the details, but I want to describe a smidge about what she accomplished here. So Bart created Taming the Terminal under a Creative Commons license, which means it's free to play with and distribute, but it requires attribution, you can't make money off of it, and you can't create derivative works from it. He's committed to doing all of the amazing work he does for the good of the community and not to make money. So Helma used a series of open source tools to take this open source work and convert it into an open source book. She used a Node.js program to convert the HTML to Markdown, which is the simplified language Bart likes to write in for his blog posts. She then learned there was a better open source language for creating books called ASCII Doctor. It's a lot like Markdown, but it's made for books. But to convert to ASCII Doctor, she had to dust off her knowledge of the open source language Ruby and Ruby Gems. That's because she found an open source application called Cramdown, which would do the conversion, but that was written in Ruby. She needed to make sure that we had nice syntax highlighting for the code blocks, but the first few she tried didn't support shell scripts, and that's pretty much what the Taming the Terminal is all about. She found an open source syntax highlighter called Rouge that would support the scripts. I could keep going, but I think you're starting to get the theme to this entire project. It's all about open source. Every step of the way from Bart's initial writing and choosing it to give away, give away his content and us both choosing to give away the podcast through every tool Helma used and all of it was made possible because of the open source community. Now, you'll mention I didn't mention, uh, you'll notice that I didn't mention the book being available for Kindle in the Amazon store the way we have it in the Apple bookstore. There's a reason for that. Turns out, Amazon will not let you self-publish a book for free. It would have been a violation of our license agreement, even though I'm a co-author, for me to put it up there and charge for it. Now, we can both agree to charge for it. That's okay. And we may still do that. But the only way we're going to do that is if we can figure out a way to give the money back into the community, because that's the point of this whole project. Well, when Helma and I finally got to make the big reveal to Bart uh, on Saturday, along with Steve, the, the three of us got on there with him, he was positively floored. You know, Bart isn't often at a loss for words, but his amazement at the gift that Helma and I gave him was just the best thing in the world. It made my month. I, I had my expectations set really high and it beat my expectations of how awesome it was to give him this gift. You know, I, I've got tears in my eyes as, as I'm remembering that. I've never seen him smile this much. 
So as we were talking about it, Helma and he quickly turned to nerdier topics as she was able to transfer ownership of the GitHub project from this super secret project owned by her. She made it no longer a secret project. It was wide open and she transferred it to the Bartificer team. So the Bartificer team is Bart, me, Dorothy, and now Helma. It was such a, a, a grand gesture of hers and it was so fun to see this, this thing go from being secret to being public to being handed off and being gifted to Bart. I mean, in a super nerdy way, you know, it was, it, was, it was just one of the best days. I had so much fun doing it. Overall, I really hope you'll download the book in the format you want it, read it, learn from Bart's tutorials, and maybe even you'll learn a little bit from my dumb questions in the audio podcast that's in the, uh, that's in the book as well, and keep appreciating that Helma rocks. By the way, I checked, and in the Apple Bookstore, if you go for, you can search by genre. If you go in by genre and you go to computers and tech, uh, I think it's computers and technology, and then you look for top free books, Taming the Terminal is the 34th highest book. It's number 34. I would like to see it change to number 33. I don't know how you do that. I think you have to read it and, and review it and say nice things about it for it to go up. But the previous 33 books, they're all written by Apple. So we could do this, guys. We just got to beat one Apple book, and I think it's an obscure one. So I really hope that you guys will download the book and appreciate it. And, uh, and like I said, keep appreciating how much Helma rocks and the open source community rocks. 100 years ago this week, my mother, Jean Madonna Jacques, was born. If you'll indulge me for a little bit, I'd like you to tell, tell you about this extraordinary woman. Jean was the eldest of seven children. My Aunt Carolyn, who was 19 years younger than her, described her as this elegant stranger who would come to visit from college. My mother married my father on December 2, 1944. My father explained to me once why he chose her. He said he dated a woman who panicked when a bee flew into the car while she was driving him and nearly drove them both off the road. He never went out with that woman again. In contrast, his first date with my mother was, was quite different. It was during the Christmas season, and he brought her home to his parents' house where he was living at the time. They lit a romantic fire in the fireplace, but my grandmother had put evergreen boughs on the mantle, which had dried out, and they caught on fire. As my father told the tale, my mother leapt up off the couch, grabbed the flaming boughs, and flung them into the fireplace. While he still got in big trouble with my grandmother for getting black soot all over her mantle, he did find the woman he would love for the rest of his life. I asked my mother once to tell me what it was like to have her husband off to war, but she would just change the subject, suggesting we talk about something more pleasant. She was like that about any sad memories. The only time she ever mentioned the hardship of having her husband away at war was actually in the context of technology. She once told me in a rather irritated tone that she thought the wives of soldiers today had no idea how good they had at being able to talk on the computer to each other. She compared it to the weeks she had to wait for a letter from my dad. My mother had several tragedies in her life, and yet she lived a life filled with joy of her own invention. I remember coming home from high school one day, and I found her in the kitchen dancing around in bare feet, crushing cereal all over the floor. As I started dialing the phone to contact the local mental health people, she explained what she was doing. She said she was opening a bag of puffed rice, you know, one of those bags that's overfilled with air, and she struggled to tear it open, and it suddenly ripped and it poured cereal all over the floor. She looked at it and realized, well, I got to clean it up either way. I might as well have fun with it before I do. That's how she lived her life. My relationship with my mom during my teen years was 
exactly what you would imagine, tumultuous to say the least. I remember describing one time in front of my mother how happy I was the day I got out of her house and went away to college. Without missing a beat, she said, you didn't see me trying to hold you back, did you? I had actually never thought about her perspective until she said that. It wasn't until I had Lindsay that my mother and I really began to get close, and I know that I didn't really appreciate her wisdom and patience until I was a mom myself. The thing I'm most pleased to have inherited from her was her silliness. She and my dad helped form a club called the Eagle Rock Cruising Club, abbreviated ERKK. My parents and their friends were avid sailors, but they didn't favor the fancy yachting clubs, so they invented their own ridiculous imitation. You see, Eagle Rock is a tiny bird poop-covered rock off the coast of Catalina Island. Yes, the Catalina after which the Mac operating system is named. The Irks held elaborate events like their annual regretta, not regatta, regretta, which I think my mother named, and they had highly competitive boating exercises, just like any good regatta. Like the one my mother invented where each couple had to compete in an inflatable raft where the husband wore a paper bag over his head on which was drawn a Muppet of their choosing. Don't know why it had to have a Muppet on it, but it did. And then the wife had to give the husband instructions on where to row the boat, but without talking. I have no idea why there was a Muppet on the bag, like I said. I'm just spitballing here, but I think there might have been alcohol involved. I put a photo in the, uh, in the article I wrote about my mom of my mother's 2010 Christmas card. In the photo, she's dressed in a red clown outfit. She's got on giant red shoes. Her face is painted as a clown. She's got this ludicrously small parasol, and she's carrying a rubber chicken. Now, this is a way to live your life, to send your Christmas card as this. Well, in her 60s, my mother began to lose her vision and macular degeneration. And I'm sure that behind closed doors, she expressed her grief about this to my father. But not once did I ever hear her complain about it to me. She took it all with grace like she did everything else. I remember she went to the Braille Institute right, at, right as soon as she started to lose her vision, where she took a cooking class for the blind. She came home and she promptly threw all of her cookbooks in the trash. She said they told her if she couldn't read them, why keep them around to depress you? I also remember her getting her first tech-assisted device. It was a small metal prong that hung on the side of a cup. She demonstrated to me that as she poured liquid into the cup, when the liquid hit the metal prong, a circuit was completed in the electronics that caused a sound to tell her the cup was full. She was so excited to explain it to me. In her mid-70s, she learned to use a DOS computer. That's before Windows existed, kids. And it had WordPerfect on it. My brother set it up for her with a utility called Lion Large Type. This software printed a tall banner at the bottom of the screen showing whatever she was typing. She explained to me that different types of visual impairments cause different color combinations to be visible depending on the person. For her, for example, red text on a green background was easier to read than yellow on blue, which was better for other people. She took to this immediately and was able to continue to write letters into her 90s. Yes, the computer lasted that long with only one hard drive replacement. My mother loved tech gadgets up to the very end. I remember her calling me one day and saying, are you watching what's coming out of that consumer electronics show in Las Vegas? They got a TV that's 10 millimeters thick. How did they get power into that thing? She was 92 when she said that to me. My mom called the podcast The Silly Cast, which I thought was kind of appropriate. She even came on from time to time to do tech reviews for us. She became a favorite of the Nocilla Castaways and was dubbed the Pod Mom. 
They wrote her wonderful fan mail, which I would read to her over the phone. She really loved the No Castaways right back. I pulled out one of the reviews she did for the podcast of a technology product she was super excited about. This was recorded on May 9th, 2010, and I'd like to play it for you now. Well, I have a very special Mother's Day guest on the show today. Back again for yet another product geek review is my mother, Jean Moorhead. How are you doing today, Mom? Well, hi, Allison, and all your fans out there. It's so nice to hear little bits about you from Allison every now and then. <laughs> the inventor of the name The Silly Cast, as I recall. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. Thank you, sweetie, and oh, for all the goodies, the luncheon and the flowers and everything, I feel very loved and cared for. So uh, you, have a, you have a new tech toy, and uh, I wanted to hear a little bit about it, but maybe start off with uh, what problem are you trying to solve here? Well, the tech toy is a um, digital book reader, and the tremendous advantage it is over the old conventional one we've been using I've been using for 25 years which certainly was better than nothing it played four track tapes but is it was huge and ponderous you simply didn't move it around and it seemed to be covered with switches and buttons to push push I counted at least 11 different ones oh dear because you're playing a four track tape and you have to keep it uh, uh you have to change the tape it, it each tape plays for two hours, but it isn't easy. You've got to keep turning it and then changing the side selector switches so you go onto the right track. And believe me, you get on the wrong track, you're really confused. And it does <laughs> okay. take a lot to confuse you when you're 90 years old anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, but it, it was certainly better than nothing. And everything in the world is on tape, as you people who may use it know. And incidentally, I wanted to point out that you don't have to be even legally blind, you just a certain amount of vision loss you can apply to the Library of Congress if you don't have a Braille Institute in your area, which there are very few of them around the country. Um, and you can qualify these and get them through your local library. And I know a lot of people here in the facility where I reside who just, it's too uh, overwhelming to read when you get to be 100 years old, but they can still continue. <laughs> So, so but you actually the get these so, uh, these devices are supplied to you by the U.S. government, so you're not having right. to pay to buy these devices. No, absolutely not. And wow. almost everything in the world is on tape, too. And But it, it, uh, it was a nuisance, like in the middle of the night, you've been reading something and you fall asleep while the tape runs out. Now, to backtrack and try to find where you were can be a hassle. And it's particularly annoying when you're reading a mystery <laughs> and as you're backtracking, you find out who done it before you even had read why he did it. <laughs> <laughs> and as I recall, you're quite a fan of the murder mystery. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know me, Allison. And so, uh, a quick side, a quick side note. I came up uh, one morning for breakfast, and my mother's cooking breakfast, and she's got on some horrid murder mystery on the TV. And she turned around and said, "Honey, we're having knifings for breakfast." <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a memory! Uh, <laughs> so anyway. Well, anyway, just recently they have come out with this marvelous digital book reader. And, um, for instance, we used to get cassettes, the four-track cassettes. You'd have four to six to get a book about 300 pages or 400 pages. And here you get one little cartridge, the size of a credit card, a little thicker, hmm. goes into this wonderful digital book reader. And it can play a 500-page book without any messing with the cartridges or anything or changing. And it is really a love from a tactile 
uh, aspect because of which is what we rely on, as all you people are buying now. There's only four sets of arrows in either, each corner, and then there's a power button, which the bin with, when you turn that on, it tells you how much battery power you have left. For instance, uh, I just pressed it, and I have seven hours left before it's going to run out and has to be recharged. You can play it while it's recharging, too, but that, that helps a lot. And, you know, it has volume once I tone, uh, pass forward, and rewiring, and re, re um, Picking it up. It uh, it really is so simple, and what I love about it, it's idiot proof, absolutely perfect for me at my age. <laughs> and no idiot, uh, but the, I know what tone, you mean. The tone is excellent, and it has a little re- retractable handle, and you can carry it. It's a little heavy, but it's small. And I lifted Allison's handbag the other day, and wow, this would be lightweight by comparison. <laughs> I do carry a few gadgets. So if you have to wait somewhere, you can plug in, put in your ear phone in. I just think it's an absolutely great thing. It's going to... Then the one big aspect of it is a snooze button. And as you go to bed, and I do my best reading in bed, you can set it. It goes in 15-minute increments, and you can have 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 45 on an infinitum. And it, um, it lets it play just for 15 minutes. Oh, so if you, if you know about how long it is till you fall asleep reading? Or, or that you want to fall asleep. You don't want to be stuck reading that book half the night because that can be bad if you're reading something interesting. You don't <laughs> oh, go I've to had sleep. that happen. <laughs> well, so and, how big is this device? Now, that was another thing. This device is about 10 inches by five and a half. So it's still pretty big. The other one was 18. Yeah, well, that isn't very big. The other one was 18 to 19 by uh, 11 or 12. And, wow. Uh, it could really make quite a difference. It's, it's so uh, portable, and um, it, it's just a neat little unit. It hasn't got anything protruding anywhere, and I've, I think it's going to be great. And uh, I'm looking, I'm going to try to find a 500 page book and check it out, make sure I can read it all. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know sometimes you've uh, gotten gadgets and they seem like a good idea at the time, but then in execution, they turn out to be a little more difficult. Yeah. But it sounds like this one was as good as you were hoping it would be. Yes, and things that have too many functions frequently don't anyone do any one of them good, you know. So this, this is going to be a great hit. And I know all the totally blind people at Braille, where I still attend, attempting to get a, the uh, <clears throat> uh, voice-operated computer into my noggin. Mm-hmm. They, uh, all, they all have them in their back pocket, practically. They're, they're in their knapsacks and wouldn't be caught without them. So this is a great breakthrough and wonderful for me. So I want to say hello to all of you, and I know you all have had good mommies because you listened to Allison. (laughs) And just continue to listen to her. Someday she's going to get it right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Mom, I think on that note I'm going to just cut you off. Happy Mother's Day. Oh, dear, you don't like my words of wisdom. (laughs) Goodbye, sweetie. Love you all. All right. Well, I have to say I teared up listening to your voice after all these years, but I had to laugh when she made fun of me to you. I think you'll get a small insight from that to where I got my sarcastic sense of humor. My mother was a woman of great faith and lived her life with grace and poise, and I know she's with the angels and probably still making fun of me. Let's switch gears now with something a little bit sillier. Well, it's hard to be sillier than my mom, but um, this is a little rant by Alistair Jenks. I recently purchased a Zoom H1N portable field recorder. 
and it came with free licenses for a couple of software packages, which I thought I'd check out. They are Cubase LE and Wavelab LE. I decided I would install Wavelab LE and give it a try. Here are the steps I followed. 1. Create web account. 2. Log in to enter code from product package. 3. Click download link. 4. Install the downloaded download manager. 5. Run the download manager. 6. Select the product from a long list of options. 7. Click download and wait. Not too bad on the speed and size there. 8. Open the download which is an installer. 9. Run the installer. 10. Launch the application. 11. Decode weird error message that says no licenser found. 12. Search website to find that licenser is a separate piece of software. 13. Relaunch download manager to look for licenser. 14. Search website to find out how to get the licenser. 15. Download the licenser. 16. Install the licenser. 17. Click Enter Activation Code. 18. Decode weird error that says no licenser available. 19. Search website to find that this is a known problem. So, 20. Download the License Manager Assistant Tool. 21. Run the Assistant Tool. No install process at least. 22. Assistant Tool does fix the licenser. It now has a licenser listed. 23. Click Enter Activation Code. 24. Enter the code. It says Wavelab LE. Yay! 25. Confirm license. It downloads. 26. Quit License Manager. 27. Launch Wavelab LE. 28. Marvel at the Not Activated Would You Like to Activate message. 29. Click Activate. 30. Repeat steps 24 and 25. 31. Nothing happens. No windows on screen. No app running. 32. Relaunch Wavelab LE. 33. Not activated. 34. Humor it by going through the same process again. Steps 29 and 30. 35. Relaunch Wavelab LE. 36. Not activated. 37. Locate product forums and find a lot of people having the same sorts of problems and no great answers. 38. Walk away from computer defeated. Step 39. Decide to have another go. 40. Activation fails because the code has already been registered. 41. Log in to website. 42. Check activations. 43. Realise I have been installing and trying to activate Wavelab LE using the Cubase LE codes. 44. 45. Use the correct code. 46. After a repeat of 31 and 32, it runs. Have we all been in Alistair's shoes or what? 
I love that. That was great, Alistair. Thanks for sharing that with us. Well, instead of panhandling for money this week, I'd like to ask all of you to go download the copy of Taming the Terminal in the Apple Bookstore and see what you can learn. It'd give me great joy if you'd get something out of the book and if you left a review on the bookstore. Right now, Taming the Terminal is number 34 in the top free category from computers and internet, and I'd like to see it climb even higher. Might not be possible since 1 to 33 are all by Apple, but it'd be really fun to try. You know what? While you're at it, send the link to all of your nerd friends. Thank you in advance for your support. As you have undoubtedly heard, a U.S. House of Representatives committee called the CEOs of Apple, Alphabet, which is also Google, Facebook, and Amazon to testify before them this week. Stephen Getz texted me in Telegram that it was really good TV. I was head down working on something during the day, so I didn't get a chance to tune in live, but later he sent me the link to the full hearing on YouTube. I'm really glad I chose to watch this way because the full length of the video is 7 hours and 35 minutes, but it turns out the hearings don't start until like 2 hours into that, and there's some rather long breaks. I watched the entire video in small increments throughout the past few days. I've made it an absolute rule to never voice a political opinion on my blog or podcast, and I'm not going to break that rule now. I'm not going to call anyone names. I'm not going to make fun of either side. But I am going to talk to what I learned from watching the hearings. I'm going to talk about what I learned about the CEOs, their business practices, and a bit about how uh, what the objectives were of the hearings. The four CEOs were Tim Cook of Apple, Sundar Pichai of Alphabet slash Google, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, and Jeff Bezos of Amazon. Notably not there were Twitter and Microsoft. Now, in theory, the purpose of the hearings was to get the CEOs to give testimony with regard to antitrust behavior of their companies. The committee had been collecting evidence of problems for quite some time, and this was essentially the culmination of these efforts. One of my initial thoughts in watching these four men was how incredibly poised they were in face of such scrutiny. Now, I know I should expect it of people in charge of billion-dollar companies, but even as they were asked sometimes unanswerable questions, they kept their cool and they answered respectfully. There were quite a few, when did you stop beating your wife type of questions, and I know if I'd been in front of that committee, I would have either started laughing or said, can you please state a question that isn't so idiotic? Anyway, it's just possible that this attitude curbed further rise in my career when I was working for, uh, you know, the company. One of the big complaints from tech nerds has been that government representatives are too old and out of touch to understand the complexities of technology. I'm really kind of disappointed when I hear people say that, though, for a couple of reasons. The main reason I find that an unfortunate perspective is that it minimizes how many diverse subjects these people have to deal with and know about. Would you expect them to understand the intricacies of farming equipment? What about medical procedures? How about the depths of accounting practices? Microbiology? Cryptography? How could you know all of that? It's obvious you wouldn't expect them to know all of that. But technology is a pervasive thread through much of what we do these days, so it is important that the members of Congress have staff to supply them with good questions and at least a high-level understanding. The hearings from this week showed to me that they had heard how much we were mocking them from previous hearings, because this time the representatives had some really detailed questions that showed the staffers that they had working for them understood the problems at hand. So what did we learn? Now, I naively thought, as I mentioned at the beginning, was that the purpose of the questioning would be for the representatives to ask questions, 
Listen to the answers and then add those answers to the body of evidence their investigations had already revealed. I'm just adorable in my naivete, aren't I? Well, the format of the hearing, while immensely entertaining, was basically a representative reading off, off a list of alleged malfeasance by one of the companies and then asking the CEO if it was true. And after approximately maybe six words of an answer from the CEO, cutting them off and going on to another subject. Now, you would have thought that would have been frustrating to me and discouraged me. But if you listen closely enough to the questions, they did bring up some pretty damning evidence of problems. Let me pick on Amazon for a moment. One of the representatives played an audio clip of a woman describing her lucrative business selling books on Amazon and how Amazon slowly and systematically started removing books she was allowed to sell until she could sell nothing at all. See, she said that she tried 500 times to get an explanation from Amazon, including sending emails directly to Jeff Bezos, and never got a useful explanation. Now, perhaps I resonated with her plight, having had Amazon cut off my affiliate account, even though I did respond to the request that I make some changes, but they gave me no recourse. And there, actually, I shouldn't say that. There was an appeals process, and it came back, no, no explanation. Don't know why I was cut off. I was uh, surprised that in the hearings, they didn't bring out how overnight Amazon dramatically reduced commission rates on their affiliate program right after banning me, which put many publishers in financial distress. The other thing they talked to Amazon about was how Amazon has started making equivalent products to third-party sellers, undercutting their prices and promoting their own products to the top of the search results. The Amazon Basics brand comes to mind in this example. Of all of the claims against these companies, this seems to be the most blatant, obvious example of an abuse of a powerful position to me. I'm not in charge of making the laws, but it looks and smells pretty bad to me. If the purpose of the questions, which were really speeches, was to make me dislike Amazon and their practices, eh, the representatives uh, kind of achieved those objectives. Sundar Pichai of Alphabet started out strong and poised, but after around four hours, he seemed to start foundering a little bit. His answers seemed less related to the questions, and he was less articulate in his answers. They asked him a lot about their ad business with respect to third-party ad services and about YouTube's connection to those ad services. I'm not as knowledgeable about that side of the business, so I didn't really form any strong opinions on that. But I did find one thing ironic, and this wasn't the only time this happened in the hearings. At one point, they questioned him about user privacy and online tracking, and they made accusations that Google did nefarious things with information in users' emails. And then in the very next line of questioning, the representatives accused them of doing something wrong when they instituted privacy, privacy, per, I'll get this yet, privacy practices in their browser that stopped online tracking. I mean, come on, they, they can't have it both ways. They're accusing them of doing excessive tracking. And then when they do something to stop tracking, they get mad at them. So that was a little bit ironic. I'm sure they were doing nefarious things all over the place, but that I found ironic. Now, Facebook's reputation is already pretty bad, and I'm not fond of the company at all. And the line of questioning from the representatives didn't do anything to improve my impression of them. Mark Zuckerberg played it as well as possible, but it was hard to see Facebook in a favorable light after watching this. I did find it odd that they gave Zuckerberg a hard time about buying Instagram and WhatsApp. Sort of seems like the time for those questions would have been back when they got antitrust approval for the purchases, not years after the purchase. I mean, you could see what they were doing. 
Now, what was interesting about the questions on uh, WhatsApp and Instagram was Instagram was that they revealed some evidence suggesting Facebook actually threatened the CEO of Instagram if they didn't sell. Facebook said they would copy their capabilities and put them out of business. I'm paraphrasing, but it was that's how it came out. Now, I'm not sure that's been proven, but that kind of did give me pause. A lot of the questions of Zuckerberg were about wording in internal emails that Congress revealed to us. My own biases might be showing here, but much of the questioning was about specific words that were used to try to increase their market share for Facebook. Now, it kind of seems like the job of a CEO is to kind of try to gain market share. They were real specific about him wanting to gain market share. Now, I can see that if they're using their existing market dominance to crush competitors by forcing them to sell, that would be problematic. But the focus often wavered from that point. One representative quoted the original 900-word user agreement. In it, it said, We do not and will not use cookies to collect private information from any user. She then asked, Today, does Facebook use use cookies to collect private information from users? And Zuckerberg replied, No, cookies is not a big way we're collecting information from users. We do use cookies. That was a direct quote. So if I were a betting woman, I'd see Facebook as getting the title of most likely to be broken up after listening to the hearings. Now, I've been accused of being an Apple apologist, and perhaps that's sometimes a correct characterization. I do wear my ever so slight Apple bias on my sleeve, and I'm more more likely to give them slack than other companies. I, of course, think I have fully valid reasons for doing that, but I can see your perspective. Tim Cook did not get roasted nearly as much as the other CEOs, and I'm not really sure why. He kept his cool throughout being stone-faced as he gave deliberate, if vague, answers during the six words he was able to squeeze in after each question. I exaggerate a bit, of course, and as the time wore on, I noticed that even the Congress critters, as Bart likes to call them, started to lose energy and sometimes even let the CEO being questioned finish a whole sentence. Tim was asked extensively about the percentage cut that Apple takes from developers. Each time they brought it up, Tim managed to squeeze in that only 16% of apps pay any kind of cut to Apple. So 84% of the apps are being subsidized by that 16%. I think that's an important thing to remember when people point at 30% being too high of a price. If 84% are getting a free ride, it kind of changes the calculus a little bit, or the arithmetic, I should say. Now, maybe 30% is too high, but it's part of that equation what it costs to support all developers with tools when only 16% are paying you anything. When asked whether Apple could someday make their cut 50%, Tim explained that there's fierce competition for developers, pointing to opportunities with Android, Windows, and Xbox. It's a double-edged sword for developers. On the one hand, they absolutely do have a choice, but if they really want to make money, it appears that the best game in town is the Apple App Store. I have a lot of thoughts on the App Store, and I had Tom Merritt come on the NoSilicast a little while ago to talk through all of this. So if you want to listen to all of my opinions on that subject, there's a link in the show notes right to our discussion with Tom Merritt. There were some questions where I think Tim Cook was at best disingenuous with his answers. At one point he was asked, in the context of the 30% fee, whether all developers are treated the same. Tim said, they're all treated the same if they meet the same criteria. I think that was kind of weasley because we do know that Amazon is paying 15% when smaller companies are paying 30%. Maybe when he says meets the same criteria, that criteria is as long as your company name is Amazon. 
But there was one kind of troubling part of the questioning that Tim Cook couldn't answer. One representative asked whether Apple has to go through the same rules for its apps as any developer. Tim said yes. The representative pointed out that the App Store review guidelines say that developers should not submit copycat apps, but uh, they also have in their developer agreement that Apple can copy developers' apps. He went on to ask Mr. Cook why one rule for developers and the opposite rule for Apple. And Mr. Cook responded with, I'm not familiar with that rule, but I can follow up with your office about that, which was a common phrase, by the way. A lot of CEOs said that. So my first thought was that the representative must be wrong, that this sounded crazy, but he wasn't wrong. In section 4.1 of the App Store Review Guidelines, it says, and I'm quoting, come up with your own ideas. We know you have them, so make yours come to life. Don't simply copy the latest popular app on the App Store or make some minor changes to another's app's name or UI and pass it off as your own. In addition to risking an intellectual property infringement claim, it makes the App Store harder to navigate and it just isn't fair to your fellow developers. That makes sense. There's probably not anyone hearing this that would think that was a bad thing. But here's the language from the Apple Developer Agreement, Section 11, that brings together what the representative was talking about. It was under the heading of Apple Independent Development. And it says, Nothing in this agreement will impair Apple's right to develop, acquire, license, market, promote, or distribute products, software, technologies that perform the same or similar functions as or otherwise compete with any other products, software, technologies that you may develop, produce, market, or distribute. Nothing in the agreement impairs their ability to copy. The same language is in the Apple Developer Program License Agreement, Section 14.4, dated June 22, 2020. I was completely floored by this, and you know, there's not anything in my apologist brain that can excuse Apple for this. I read this out to uh, Pat Dingler, and she pointed out this is what allows them to Sherlock apps. It's in the agreement. You can't develop for Apple unless you agree that they can copy what you create. Well, moving on, at another point, they asked him a question that contradicted an earlier one. Remember how they were asking whether they treat all developers the same and they were given a hard time for not treating all developers the same? Later in the questioning, they brought up a couple of companies who used to have in-person services and so had zero cost to be in the App Store. They didn't have to pay a fee at all because everything was in-person. These companies have now been forced to go online because of the pandemic, so they now charge a subscription fee, and Apple is asking for their cut of those subscription fees. The representative suggested to Mr. Cook that this was profiteering because of the virus, which is a bad thing. We know that. But it seems to me that if they didn't charge the developers that had changed the model to include subscription fees, they'd be accused of not charging developers the same. So Apple's really kind of in a lose-lose situation with that one. I'm, I'm really on Apple's side in that case. Even if Apple just decided to cut their margins to, say, 20% and 10% for the subsequent years of a subscription, I don't think that's going to solve any of the other problems. It seems to me that the only solution this committee would be happy with overall is if Apple allowed developers to put their apps on iOS without going through the App Store. I can just picture what Apple would do. They would make you sign something that says, like you, you push a button to say, I want to load, I want to sideload an app, and it would say, okay, fine. 
Users have to sign this agreement. It states they can't get any support from us ever, ever, ever again if they do that. I mean, can you imagine somebody being able to call Apple and complain about their battery life and Apple having to diagnose some dodgy app that's screwing it up or wreck their privacy? That is just not going to happen. Well, I do want to drop in one funny thing to, to close this out here. Mark Zuckerberg does not have a very expressive face, and he speaks kind of without blinking very much. This robotic-looking image has earned him jokes about his res resemblance to Commander Data from Star Trek The Next Generation. But during the hearings, I couldn't help but notice that this combined with the dropped frames in his feed caused the video of him to look like a very bad deep fake. It's really funny. I captured a short sequence that a little illustrates that deep fake look and put it in the show notes. And comically, he happens to be talking about AI right where I captured this video. It's only a few seconds long. You should go watch it. It's, it's pretty funny when you think about it. Well, the subcommittee chairman ended the sessions with, these companies as they exist today have monopoly power. Some need to be broken up. All need to be properly regulated and held accountable. I'm going to be on the edge of my seat awaiting their recommendations. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com and follow me on Twitter at podfeet. And don't forget to buy the book, Taming the Terminal. Remember, you should buy it. Well, you don't have to pay for it at all, do you? Go get it for free everywhere. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. Ooh, I should have a link to the book on that. Podfeed.com slash TTT book or something. Don't look for that yet. I haven't decided. Anyway, everything good starts with podfeed.com. Want to become a patron? Podfeed.com slash Patreon. Want to give a one-time donation at PayPal? Podfeed.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook group? Podfeed.com slash Facebook. Want to have some fun in the Slack where Bart hangs out? Podfeed.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Lucilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.